Hey everyone, I'm Amad Ali Akbar, and this is See Something, Say Something. This week, we're going to be talking to some reporters about the state of Islamophobia in American politics. So this piece that the two reporters put together is a question that they asked about if we looked in every state, where would we find Islamophobia? And it turns out it's in the Republican Party of every state, except for Utah. <laughs> so I brought on Hannah Alam and Dalal Ansari to help me make sense of it. Um, welcome, Hannah. She is a um, national reporter covering U.S. Muslim life. Hi there. And we're also joined by Talal, who's a breaking news reporter here at BuzzFeed News. Hi, Talal. Thanks for having me back. First, before the stories, we got to give Hannah a big congratulations. She recently won the Wilbur Award for Secular Reporting on Religion for her article series in the Crosshairs, Muslims in Trump's America, which covered things like Muslim summer camps, mosque arsons, questions of religious leadership. We're so proud of you. Thank you. Likewise, you're too humble to mention your own Wilbur. <laughs> yes, we but, both. You know, congrats. We, you, you know, you also won. <laughs> so congratulations to you too. Yes. Yeah, so see something, say something. I'm happy to announce did win a Wilbur Award for Excellence in Reporting in Secular Media on Religion for our Ramadan series last year. Um, it was really fun to go down to Atlanta and meet up with all sorts of folks doing different work. And, you know, I just saw Hannah on stage and I'm like, yes, recognize her. Her work is so good. <laughs> OK, so um, we're going to bring back something that we haven't done in a while, which is I'm going to ask my guests, what are you thinking about this week? Hannah, what's on your mind right now? Uh, today, actually, the conversation that has fascinated me has been about whether MMA, mixed martial arts, is haram. Is it forbidden? The reason that this conversation has come up is because um, just in the past 24 hours, a man named Khabib Nurmagomedov, a Russian Dagestani Muslim guy, has just become the UFC's lightweight champion of the world. So he is the first Muslim to hold this position. Huh. And you know, Muslims, we do like to celebrate our first. Yes, <laughs> it's we a very do. kind of a contentious <laughs> thing. You know? um, and so that touched off this really fascinating conversation that I was watching unfold online about whether, you know, to congratulate him or not, because all these Muslims were like, Alhamdulillah, mashallah, the first Muslim <laughs> UFC champion is amazing. And then Classic. just as soon as they're celebrating, here comes the chorus of MMA is haram. It has the potential to cause permanent physical harm. So, you know, that's against the teaching of, you know, of the faith. Oh, and. And, you know, and so it was this interesting back and forth of, but the prophet was known to wrestle and wrestling was pre, you know, popular at his time. And, and is this all happening on like Twitter? Saying, yeah, but yeah, on Twitter, Facebook. Yeah, you see it. Um, you see it unfolding. And then it became, you know, well, what about Ibtahaj Muhammad? Because she, you know, she got criticized for fencing in a. Um, but it, for her, it was um, deemed okay because, you know, the, the criticism was about that her clothes weren't modest enough. Her fencing, you know, clothing wasn't modest enough, but the sport itself wasn't, you know, haram and didn't cause permanent damage. So the, the problem in this one, they're saying the sport itself is haram. That's one of the criticisms of it. And then there are just as many Muslims pushing back and saying, 
that's nuts. We're going to celebrate the guy. We're really proud of him. And, you know, wrestling has been around and Muslims have participated in it since, you know, the the early days of Islam. Well, well, you know, what's fascinating about this is, you know, the first sport that Muslims really excelled at and were recognized for in the modern era, at least, is boxing, which is, you know, very interrelated with MMA. But I'm like kind of surprised to hear that there haven't been any Muslims before this. Um, and he sounds like he's really, really, like, impressive. <laughs> he wrestles. Oh, yeah. So, uh, you know, he comes from this kind of hard scrabble background. And one of the most popular videos about him floating around is from YouTube. And it shows a nine-year-old, Habib, um, wrestling a bear. Oh, my so- God. <laughs> That's literally Zangief from Street Fighter. Exactly. If you ever played that game, he has all these scratches That's on it. his body. <laughs> Because he wrestles bear. He's a, he's a real-life Zangief, apparently. There you go. <laughs> I didn't think that was a real thing, but apparently it is. Apparently it is. There's a video. Dalal, what story are you thinking about this week? So this week, uh, I've been thinking about the photos that have been circulating about the sort of press tour that the crown prince of Saudi Arabia, Mohammed bin Salman, has been on. There's photos of him, you know, dressed in a suit uh, with former Mayor Bloomberg getting coffee. There's another photo of him with the Google founders. There's another photo of him in Hollywood with Richard Branson, all the, all this sort of stuff. Now, you know, obviously the Twitter is also totally, you know, split on this. Let's remind ourselves this is not some, like, cool guy who's reforming Saudi. He's also involved in a current war in Yemen, and he's, he's, he's a killer. Um but I think it's funny because a lot of the American media totally, I think, left that out. You know, there was a 60 Minutes interview where, where he was kind of just praised and there's very little criticism about him that they reported on. Um, but on the lighter side, um, I think Dwayne, <laughs> Dwayne The Rock Johnson sl- <laughs> slipped up and he had a Facebook post where he was like, oh, great meeting you and all this. And then the last line was like, I'll bring some tequila to share with you and your family. (laughs) (laughs) And um, if you don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I think everyone knows the Saudis actually like to drink, the Saudi royals. But like somehow it's just such a faux pas for the rock to really call him out in that way. And if you read between the lines, it's like because we had some and you really liked it or something. You know what I mean? But he apparently edited that post to get rid of that. He adjusted it to say like... I'll bring it for myself or something strange. When I saw the story about The Rock posting about, you know, oh, yeah, I got to get some tequila, really, you know, my top shelf tequila for these guys. It just took me back to my days of covering diplomacy when I first started. And I remember I was uh, was I was going to meet some, I think, Pakistani diplomats and a colleague who had been, you know, covering diplomacy for a lot longer than I had said, OK, so just dress modestly and bring some Johnny Walker Black. <laughs> 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 I was like, great. <laughs> That's so classic. So, I don't know, yeah. That just confirms. These are kind that. of open secrets. These are, yeah, these are kind of open secrets. <laughs> so the story that I'm thinking about is uh, this week, uh, The Simpsons released a response to the longstanding critiques of Apu, the um, convenience store character who's played by Hank Azaria, a white guy. It was a character of Indian background. Please pay for your purchases and get out and come again. Hari Kondabalu's documentary got a lot of press because, you know, he's a you know fairly famous comedian and it was so obviously an outdated thing from the 90s. They basically have this arc on this episode where, like, 
Lisa and Marge are, are like arguing over this book that like Marge loved growing up and she realized that it's kind of offensive looking back at it. So she goes and tries to rewrite it and make it less offensive. Once there was a cisgender girl named Clara. She lived in South America fighting for wild horse rescue. And net neutrality. And then Lisa, like, sees the rewrite, and she's just like... Clara sounds like she starts out pretty perfect. You betcha. But since she's already evolved, she doesn't really have an emotional journey to complete. Nope. Kind of means there's no point to the book. They look directly at the camera, and they seem to be directly addressing Hari Kondabalu, the guy who did the documentary The Problem with Apu. Well, what am I supposed to do? It's hard to say. Something that started decades ago and was applauded and inoffensive is now politically incorrect. What can you do? Some things will be dealt with at a later date. If at all. Basically, they gave what has been described as a completely toothless response. Also, somebody pointed out, like, something that started decades ago and was applauded and inoffensive is now politically incorrect. That's like all racist things ever. Right. You know, like, it was just really shocking to, to me that they didn't have... Like grapple with all of the all the conversations around like whitewashing and you know like lack of mm-hmm. representation in media. I mean, I thought it was almost taunting to that last line. If at all, it's like, well, you know, if you're going to address it or not. So you're clearly saying no. I was at um, Universal Studios in Los Angeles a few months back, and they have like a Simpsons town basically, and they have a Quickie Mart and all that. And this is when I knew that Hari Kondabalu was, uh, you know, having that uh, show coming out and he was really tackling the issue. And I remember a few people, because they have, like, audio of of the characters talking and specifically Apu. And I remember people laughing. And they weren't laughing because he said something funny. It was literally just the accent. Right. Hmm. And, And there were, like, kids next to me, like, just laughing again and again. Like, so they find it funny for that reason, which is, I think, inherently a problem. But one other thing I think is interesting, and I want to know what you guys think, is usually people's counter to this is the Simpsons make fun of everyone. They stereotype all these other races. You know, why is Apu the problem? And I know Hari Kondabu spends like literally half the program saying why. But I mean, what do you guys say to that? I think it's also part of this, you know, bigger conversation that's going on about censorship and what constitutes censorship is is right. asking for fair representation is is pointing out when something you know hey we don't want another white protagonist in a novel with muslims as a backdrop or brown people or black people as the backdrop you know um we've seen that show you know <laughs> and it's time for new representations and everything so there's these all these conversations swirling around we saw it in the literary world with um that american heart novel We've seen it in movies with um, The Big Sick and other things. And, and now, you know, I, I think this is just another example of, um, of that where, you know, people of color have grievances, longstanding ones, but get caught up in are they allowed to address them or not? Because right. is that, con- does that constitute censorship to say, could you please stop? Right. Maybe 30 years is long enough, <laughs> however long up who's been on air. And I think making fun of marginalized groups um, as opposed to like everyone, there's certain groups that making fun of them is not going to translate into violence or like harm for the community. Whereas like the story that you just told about like them laughing at the accent, that's like has a, like actual effect on like. Indian immigrants and, and you know, Desi immigrants of all sorts of backgrounds. Um, and it's still such an influential thing on the way people think about Indian Americans. 
So the piece that you guys published this week, which we'll link to in the bio, is all about this survey you did of Islamophobic rhetoric in American politics. Um, you're looking for both Republicans and Democrats, but mostly found Republicans from former Nebraska State Senator Bill Kittner, who suggested that any Muslim who wanted to enter the United States should be forced to eat pork first, to surveys being sent to Muslims in Texas, basically that are loyalty tests, asking what they think about you know the Muslim Brotherhood and you know uh, ex-Muslims, to elected politicians posing with what appear to be bacon-greased bullets. As I understand it, you guys started this piece with the idea of how many states can we expect there to be an elected official to have bash Muslims like on record? How many did you expect when you went into it? That's that's right. I mean, we so I remember a very early conversation with Talal where we said, you know, how many states have an openly anti-Muslim elected official or senior appointed official? And I think we were like, could we, oh, I mean, if we have a story that says half of all states, you know, that would be a story. Yeah. And then we, oh, yeah, so sad. Right, <laughs> you know, where do we live? Right. <laughs> and then we, um, we actually divided up the states, so, you know, 25 and 25. And we set off to research and we're like, whoa, not only do we have way more than we expected, we have multiple um, incidents and politicians in several states. Um, and so, yeah, it was um, it was pretty grim, honestly, to see it laid out so starkly and to kind of tally up the numbers. I'm both shocked and not in the same way. Um, but I found it also to be like a really good intervention in like the media landscape, because I feel like, you know, 2016, like when this show started, Islamophobia was like you couldn't get anyone talking about it enough. You know, it was whatever ridiculous statement a politician had been saying or, you know, Trump specifically, or like hate crimes. And now it just feels like in a way it's gotten a little bit older. In a, in a way it's harder to report on because it's become so much a part of our fabric of, you know, politics and media. Yeah, Like Islamophobia was like the first like litmus test on our sort of democracy, I feel like. Like, you know, can our democracy handle a president that is, uh, you know, basically doesn't want a whole religious community to express their faith in the United States? And uh, like now... It's like almost accepted. So is there anything here that really surprised you or like did it did it reinvigorate you, either of you? Well, I, I will say that there is a phenomenon here in 2018 in reporting on Muslim American or anti-Muslim American uh, statements or acts that there is sort of a desensitizing effect that's occurred over the last what now? God. To, since 2015, right? right? So that's when the campaign started. That's some, when some stuff started popping off. Um, and I don't know if this is a good barometer to judge this, but, you know, when I put out a story back in the day, I used to have, you know, white supremacists and trolls come out of the woodworks and come after me. Now now I put out a story. It's almost like, they're like, oh, yeah, that's yesterday's news. Like, we're, we're, we're fighting for Russia now or whatever. Um, so, you know, if, if I can judge it that way and by views... Um, I feel like it's kind of taken a back seat, unfortunately. Um, so these things can get by now a little bit more. I totally, totally agree. And I think that this is, I mean, we can see it right in the Pompeo um, confirmation hearings. We can see this in the Pompeo right. confirmation hearings, uh, you know, which are the hearings set to begin this week. And you have uh, civil rights groups, Muslim advocates and others, um, 
on the Hill this week to make sure that, you know, that his record of, um, of Muslim bashing, of associating with anti-Muslim groups like Act for America and others, that that is taken into account for someone who is, um, whose nomination to, as Secretary of State, that's America's face to the world. That's the top diplomat right. for, the, for this country. And, um, and it's been absolutely remarkable to see profiles of, about him that just either skirt over that or just absolutely make no mention of uh, a pretty um, well-documented history of um, anti-Muslim statements and actions and associations. And a lot of what you have pointed out is that most of the stories you followed were of Republican officials, that a lot of these folks were not facing repercussions. What were some of the most glaring examples of that for you? I would like to point out when we were discussing the story before it even was a story, I think Part of it was what constitutes a significant amount of states. But the second part is this will really be a story if virtually no one is having repercussions. And that is more or less what we found. I right. think it's just a handful, right, Hannah, uh, of people that actually oh, yeah. like, lost their job. And, and and one so, of them you know, actually was a yeah. Democrat. <laughs> really? That's right. Yeah. 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 The one, you know, Democrat. And we did. We actually tried really hard to... Uh, to find Democrats that, you know, might have said things as well. It's not like we were specifically going after Republican politicians or something. We would do these broad searches. This took weeks, actually, maybe months, I think, a couple months to really pull off in the way that we felt was thorough and comprehensive. And then we were lucky in that New America um, think tank came out with a report that was... um, it had a, a section on the kinds of things we were looking at too. And um, there was a lot of overlap there. So we knew that, you know, this is not, these are not anomalies. These are, this is actually, yes, this, our research was correct. And, um, and, you know, we only included uh, items that had been, you know, documented or where the official had admitted to it. Um, but yes, very few repercussions, like a handful of firings or censures right. or even like condemnations by the local GOP or something. But I mean, by and large, no. I mean, like, you know, so there's a state senator in, in Tennessee who, I mean, we found something almost every year since 2011. And we actually were only counting from 2015. But in researching him, you realize how far back this goes. And he'd never faced any reprimand for suggesting, you know, hmm. Uh, you know, just inviting an anti-Muslim extremist uh, to visit. He'd uh, raised alarm about sinks that he saw installed in the Capitol and said, oh, is this for a Muslim prayer washing? No, it was for custodians to wash the mops. I mean, like, but I don't just mind every it, turn. to be fair, if I was there. <laughs> yeah. I might use it for the wudu. I feel like every sink is, hey, is legit works, for wudu. Right? If you've ever been in a sink, chances are a Muslim has put their foot in it. Like, let's just be honest <laughs> at some point. Oh my God. Don't do it at the Tennessee Capitol. <laughs> but it was, uh, yeah, so, I mean, there were definitely, uh, I mean, Texas was another, Alabama was another, where there were just many examples. And so, yeah, so, I mean, we have a smattering of what's actually out there, which is um sort of even scarier to think about. Right. Shout outs to Utah, which is yeah. the only state I was just gonna in say, the last three years that hasn't had such an incident I was documented. Say, if you're a Muslim American and you're feeling afraid, visit Utah. There <laughs> you go. That's definitely not an intuitive statement, but okay. <laughs> um, do you feel like this is a case of like emboldenment as like 
exposed to like the successfulness of President Trump? Or is it like an imitation and political strategy that this is actually part of the platform for a lot of folks? So I think in our time researching this, I think one of the, and this is not in the story whatsoever, um, we, I kept, and I'm sure Hannah has too, kept coming across candidates that have ran in the last three years on various cycles, uh, whether it be state or local elections. And I kept coming across candidate after candidate that were saying stuff that was more vile than any mm. of the stuff we put in the story. And it's almost right. as if um, they were using that as a way to either win their election or they saw Trump doing it and then they saw it as a tactic in or they, you know, wholeheartedly believed in it and they were just speaking their mind. But I mean, maybe that could be a story on its own, but not really because a lot of them lost, um, which is good. Um but a lot of candidates uh, took this position to openly bash Muslims or Islam as like a, a tactic to either get headlines or, or get more votes. Is there any momentum to resist this, like both within the party or from Democrats? Like it just like it feels like it's just kind of an accepted part that we understand that politicians are going to say anti-Muslim stuff. When I asked about that um it was kind of what you were saying earlier, that there's just so much going on, that this is small potatoes right. compared to, you know, things like the you know Russia investigation and some of the other stuff going on. And so there is a certain venom, though, when it comes to Muslims, that it's just, it really is like no holds barred. Like there are people who said, nuke mosques, nuke, nuke every mosque, uh, kill every Muslim, um, yeah, it's just, you know, even um, Bobby Doesn't McKinsey, even seem Robert, practical as yeah, a political why would you solution. Yeah, right. the mosque? You'd probably knock out your own house. So. <laughs> why? Why? Tell <laughs> all. Um, it's just funny, but I just can't help but think about 2016 and how many people were moved by how quickly people came out for the Muslim ban, like, to protest it. And now we have, like, an active Muslim ban. Sure, it's reduced, but, like, it is still affecting lives, Muslim lives. And as you've pointed out in this piece, there's also this widespread targeted comments or, or whatever from the Republican Party against Muslims. Why do you think it's, like, been so hard for us to maintain that momentum? I mean, back in the day, I, I used to be a nonprofit worker that worked in disaster relief. And when I got into it... Um, there was an earthquake in Haiti, I believe. There was the tsunami. I don't remember if it was the one that happened in Japan or Southeast Asia. Um, and then there was the Kashmir earthquake, which is what I was involved in. And by the time the Kashmir earthquake happened, which was third in line, um, we weren't getting that much money in donations mm. and it wasn't hitting that many headlines. And there's a term for it. It's called donor fatigue. And I think that's pretty much can be applied to this situation too. It's like how much can you know people care about? How much are they going to care about right. when it's not their community? Um, I saw it when Muslim Ban 2.0 was announced. I went to JFK thinking like there might be a, a repeat of what happened in the first one. And it was just basically like organizations and media right. um, you know, recording what they had to say officially. Well, in fairness though, in fairness, I do want to say that we did talk to um, Japanese American groups, American Jewish groups for this piece. And even if it's not the same kind of show that, you know, the a show of force that came out after the first Muslim ban attempt, I mean, they're still filing Supreme Court 
amicus briefs. They are still issuing statements. They have been paying attention to this. They hear the phenom- They see this phenomenon. They hear echoes of their own dehumanization preceding, you know, in the case of Jewish groups, the Holocaust, and in the case of Japanese Americans, the incarceration, uh, mass incarceration of uh, Japanese Americans, citizens. And, you know, it's, it's that kind of not on my watch kind of posturing. And so there, you know, I, we actually interviewed a Japanese American um, advocate who said, uh, you know, the difference is when we went through this, we didn't have anybody standing up for us in the national stage and we're not going to let that happen again to Muslims. So there are some, definitely some voices, you know, uh, standing up, but I mean, like, look at what, just look at the onslaught of news every day and, you know, sort of outrages and crises and, you know, people have called it, it's now almost trite to call it the chaos presidency. And so, you know, yeah, Muslims uh, have gotten, Muslim issues have, have, you know, tend to get lost in that. So what I've taken away from this conversation is everything is horrible. It's getting worse and we're all accepting (laughs) it. So thanks for that, guys. Thanks for your reporting on this topic. (laughs) Always an upper. Yeah. (laughs) Hannah, where can people find you in your work? I'm at uh, buzzfeed.com slash Hannah Alam and on Twitter at Hannah Alam. And Talal, where can people find you in your work? Uh, Twitter, Talal N. Ansari and uh, buzzfeed.com slash Talal Ansari. Thanks for your work on this, even though it's very, very sad. Anytime you want to cry, just have a song. This episode was produced by Megan Dietrich, Rana Akbari, Julia Furlan, and me. Additional production support from the Pod Squad. Our music is by the Caminas. Find them at caminas.bandcap.com. You can find me on Twitter and on Tumblr at radbrowndads. Email us at say something at buzzfeed.com with questions and concerns. You can find my writing at buzzfeed.com, the website. Leave us a review on iTunes so more people can find us. I'm Amadali Akbar. Thanks for listening. Can you just say dispatches from the sad desk in a really in a really slow <laughs> voice to all? No. <laughs>